Well, hello, everyone, and uh, thanks for joining us in this inaugural edition of our USCCA Ask an Attorney webinar. Um, this is the members-only platform, so thank you very much for being members of the USCCA, and we're here to provide you as much information as we possibly can. If you've watched any of our live training broadcasts, you know this guy over here, Tom Grieve from Grieve Law. Tom, you have been a prosecutor, and you are now currently a criminal defense attorney, so we can jump right into this and start asking some questions about what it takes to be a responsibly armed American. Let's do it. Um, first off is the question, what if I use my gun in self-defense and I shoot the wrong person? What are people going to be faced with when they're dealing with something like that? Well, in a word, you're going to be faced with, with problems. Okay, so there's obviously the issues that are going to rise at the scene from a safety perspective, which, you know, Kev, I'll, maybe you can run with that in a second here. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, first off, things are always going to vary from state to state, okay? And don't forget that we have both a layer of criminal issues to be dealing with as well as civil law issues to be dealing with, all right? So for starters, there's a really good chance that unless your state has some sort of immunity for whatever issue, maybe there's an immunity because you were acting in castle doctrine or for stand your ground issue or something like that. But just understand that there's a, probably a really good chance there's gonna be a civil lawsuit coming out of this on the back end. On the criminal end, many states have something called transferred intent laws, which basically means that if your original intent for that use of force, that use of deadly force in this case, was lawful, sometimes, oftentimes, there is then um, basically immunity transferred to you. And when I say immunity, let me be clear what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about there's a 0% chance you may be criminally charged as long as you say the magic words of, while I was shooting at the bad guy, right? Because there's near misses and then there's big misses. There's a lot of different factors that can play into this. Did you open up <clears throat> at 100 yards with your Glock 19 handgun, which may be relative to your training or most people's training, that was a very imprudent thing to do, regardless of that person was shooting at you. So just keep in mind that your particular prosecutors, your particular officers involved, let alone your judge and jury, are gonna have a very complex, multifaceted issue to tear apart, and that's before getting on the back end. So long story short, yes, you may be facing criminal charges. Yes, you will probably be getting sued. However, your state probably is gonna be providing some sort of defense avenues for you and your legal team to be able to pick apart and look at to help you out. This is definitely a time when somebody should be having an attorney when yes. they're involved in something like this. And we remind people all the time, we tell people, target identification, target acquisition, and target isolation. Those are the elements that you need before you pull out your gun and start shooting. So we want to reinforce this idea of proper training and knowing exactly what you're getting into when you're, when you're pulling out your gun to defend yourself. Typically, if it's a, just a very close one-on-one -on -one fight, you know, somebody's trying to rob you, you don't have much trouble with that. But a lot of questions come in about active shooters and, and, right. and situations like that. Right, so, malls, so things yeah. like that, yeah. So, and as I say, questions are rolling in. They continue to roll in now. Um, we see another one over here on the board. Um, recently, we had a carjacking video in which uh, there was a baby in the car, and the, the owner of the car defended that car with gunfire mm -hmm. to stop the guy from getting away with the baby. And the question is, what if there is no child in the car? Um, should you use deadly force to stop this theft? Well, if you want to go to prison, the answer is probably yes, <laughs> okay. because that's probably what's going to what's going to be the outcome of that. Yep. Okay, um, using deadly force in order to stop a deadly threat—that's one thing. Using deadly force to terminate—I'm going to give you kind of the legalese, so to speak. If you never heard that term before, legalese. That's kind of what in the industry people talk I'll, about. I'll try to interpret. Okay, all right, you to interpret, <laughs> perfect, all right. Um, but that's kind of the, the legalese version of, of saying here um, that if you are gonna be using deadly force to terminate 
an unlawful interference with uh, your chattel or movable property. So there you yeah. go. There's a bunch yeah. of bunch so, of terms. Um, so we want self-defense, not stuff defense. You're not defending your stuff. Um, I've seen some very good surveillance video of people getting carjacked at a gas station, and they threw the car keys on the ground and ran the other direction. I think that's a great plan. It gives the bad guy an opportunity to make a choice. Do I want the car, or do I want you and whatever it is you have, your wallet, whatever? You and know, it's going to be way. giving your defense attorney, if that bad guy sees the keys on the ground on one side and you running the other way, and if he runs after you, that's about as clean cut of a, no, this is self-defense, yep. not stuff defense yep. that we're talking about. Self-defense, okay, now we may be in a realm of using deadly force in order to stop a deadly threat. Uh, yeah. Stuff defense, that, that's a prison outcome yeah, in, in it, almost every case. And, and you're right. That makes it pretty clear that this guy doesn't just want your car. He wants to cause harm yep. to you. So then it rises to the use of deadly force. Exactly. And, and that's, that's something that I like about that. Speaking as a former state prosecutor and as a defense attorney is the fact that the bad guy's intent and what goes to your reasonable state of mind at the time that you acted? If that guy chased you a block after you threw the keys back at the scene, he's not after the car. Yeah, he's after you. It was not a carjacking. Exactly. Man. That no. that argument speaks for itself at that point as far as, no, this is self-defense. Um, if you grab the keys and go with you, look, I'm not saying that your prosecutor is going to be zealous enough to go after it, although you may be surprised to see how many are that are out there. But I can, I can see an argument of, no, nah, they just wanted your stuff. And if you follow the news, if you've seen any of the shootings, self-defense shootings that are out there nationally, you see all the time that the bad guy's family, you know, uh, bad guy makes an attack, bad guy gets killed, bad guy's mom goes on the news of, no, yeah. I wasn't, he wasn't going to kill him. He just wanted his wallet. He just wanted this. He just wanted that. It was just after his stuff. Mm -hmm. No, this definitely draws that bright line test of, no, people, not stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, now we're talking about using a gun in self-defense. I see another one rolled up here. Right. If I use my gun in a self-defense incident, am I going to get it back? I can say as a police officer, we're taking that gun. That's coming as evidence with us at the, at the scene of the shooting. So um, what do they got to do to get their gun back? Sure. So um, almost every time, just as you said, there's the police are going to be taking that, that firearm into evidence into, into their custody. Not every time. I do have cases where that has not been the case, but truly those are the outliers and folks don't prepare for the outliers. Okay. If you hear hoofbeats, think, think, <coughs> think horses, not zebras here. All right. Okay. Think about what's actually probably coming your way over that hill, not what theoretically in some weird Twilight Zone episode maybe coming over the hill, all right? Um, realistically, here's what's, here's what's going to happen. Here's kind of the tree here. If you are not going to be getting charged, so once the DA has reviewed the, the charges against you um, and they've made a decision, nope, this guy's good to go, we're not moving forward, then at that point, typically your attorney's going to say, all right, let's let the dust settle a little bit. Again, I'm not speaking to laws. I'm speaking to what you're probably going to be hearing about from your attorney. Let's just make sure that the dust on this settles, the ink dries on their signature for whatever it is, whatever letter for non-prosecution non they've issued, which particularly you see where you've got the bad guy six feet under is they'll, they'll dot their I's and cross their T's on that. Then we're going to have to go ahead um, and file through. Um, different states are going to have different mechanisms to reclaim property and firearms that were seized as part of a police investigation. If you are no prost, in other words, if you are not prosecuted or no prost, as we say, then you should be able to reclaim that once that decision has gone through. If you are being prosecuted, then my answer is going to be it depends. Uh, if, you find, if you're found not guilty, if all the charges are acquitted, and if there are no pending appeals, then you should be able to get your property back. If, however, you are found guilty of something, 
then we really have to check to see, number one, what were you guilty of? Number two, of course, what is always controlling? What are the laws in your state? Example being, if you were convicted of maybe something that had nothing to do with the, with the uh, self-defense issue, maybe <clears throat> you were convicted of uh, disorderly conduct because, I don't know, you're, you're yelling about something after the event, so it really has no connection to your use of the firearm. Maybe your particular state would say, okay, you were convicted of something, but it was not related to the firearm, so now you can get it back. Whereas other states, like here in Wisconsin, if, if that firearm was part of the crime that you're convicted of, it's a shall forfeit issue. In other words, the judge, oh, the prosecutor, okay. nobody has discretion. That okay. firearm's going downriver, it's done, gone, forget mm -hmm. about it. Likewise, if there's a pending appeal, typically the state will hang on to the evidence pending the outcome of that appeal as well. Mm -hmm. Well, I wrote what I consider to be a really good story in Concealed Carry Magazine about a backup gun, which is just another gun of the exact same model that fits in your holster. Because if you're involved in a shooting, the police are going to take that gun, and it's probably going to be a while before you get that back. Yeah. So you just go to your gun safe, take out your backup gun, put right. it in your holster, and you can defend yourself then uh, Absolutely. When, when the police take your and gun. And keep in mind that if so. you are being charged with an offense as well, you can likely anticipate, and folks, I'm not asking you to like this, I'm just saying, look, here's the truth from the trenches here, right? You're probably going to put on bond or bail conditions saying that thou shall not possess any firearms or dangerous okay. weapons. So it's something to prepare yourself for. I'm not saying that's fair. I'm not asking you to like it. I'm asking you to prepare for it, okay? Absolutely. Hey, just a quick reminder here that a lot of the questions that we're answering came in from the survey that was sent out earlier in the week. I want to thank everyone for participating in that and be alert for these. We're going to be doing them every month, so we'll be sending out surveys. You can ask us questions anytime. Send them in, and we'll make sure we set them aside for Tom when we're here doing the next Ask an Attorney segment on this. So let's get back to some more questions right now and see what we got. You want to be careful about getting involved in another person's business, but there's times when becoming involved may save someone's life. How do you know when you should get involved? Can, can I at least start? <laughs> Please. <laughs> okay. Um, how do you know when you want to be involved in a gunfight? And that's really what, what it's boiling down to here. Do you know exactly what's happening? If you don't know exactly what's happening, back off. Protect yourself. Move to cover. Do whatever you can to protect yourself. But unless you know exactly what's happening, don't get involved in somebody else's business. We saw a very tragic situation where a concealed carry person got involved in what he thought was a robbery going on, and it turned out to be somebody at a uh, department store, security personnel, trying to take and apprehend a shoplifter, and that got all kind of crazy. So when, when should people get involved? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying that there's ever a time that you should be involved outside of this. That if, you're, if your conscience dictates that it's time for you to take the risk, then take the risk. But uh -huh. that's on you. And keep in mind that when you jump into that proverbial shark tank, right? If you're going to jump into the shark tank to save that person, that you're bringing your family along for the ride. You're bringing your business along for the ride if you own a business. You're, you're bringing everyone and everything that's connected to you along for the ride. Because if you consider the prison time, the felonies, the civil lawsuits, the millions of dollars in liability that may be following it. And by the way, we're assuming that you're going to be on the winning, surviving side of this. And, and still all the bad stuff happens. Absolutely. <laughs> so, look, I'm not saying that you should never get involved. I'm not saying that you should get involved. I think that's a decision that you need to think out and wake very carefully because Lord knows your jury's well. Yeah, and, and again, this is the last thing you want to do is pull out your gun and get in the right. gunfight. We, we don't right. want to rush into that. Right. So if there's a situation where there's a gunfight between police and a bad guy, at what point should you get involved with that? 
<laughs> well, we talked about this. I'll talk. When all the police are dead and there's no other policemen around, that's it. Um, I'll tell you what, if I'm involved in a shooting as a police officer and I see someone else with a gun, I'm not going to stop to ask a whole lot of questions. Is this a good guy or a bad guy and try to figure it out? I'm going to engage that person who also has a gun. I, I don't want civilian help in a gunfight because it's just one more person I have to worry about then. So that, that's... Yeah, I mean, you look, you heard it from the law enforcement <laughs> officer right yeah. there. So coming from the legal end, yeah, I mean, I would say listen to the law enforcement officer because even though your intent may be great, if you wind up getting gunned down by officers who perceive you as a threat, not as, not as an mm -hmm. assistance. Now look, are there scenarios where this may not be necessarily true? Yeah, if you live yeah. out... You know, in, in a county where you know all three sheriff's deputies and they all know you and, and you know, the out-of-town drifter comes through, yeah, okay. I'm not saying, I don't think anybody's here is saying yeah. that there's a 0% there's a response rate. But we are saying, look, here's the rule, deviate at your own risk, and we don't recommend it generically. Yeah, and I, I think really you can get to the point where if the police officer asks for help. Sure. And we've seen that in some ground fights, you know, where the officer is just trying to get someone under control to handcuff them. Sure. And, hey, buddy, can you here hold this arm? Let's get him handcuffed. Right, right. Yes, then step in and help the police officer at that point. But I know of no police officer anywhere in the country who is going to ask you to pull out your gun and get involved in the gunfight with him unless it's really, really serious. So don't, don't jump in and try to help the cops if they're shooting back and forth at the bad guy. You're taking their attention away from the bad guy. Absolutely. All right, next on the list, uh, what would happen if, I'm, uh, if I had a trained attack dog with me and a carjacker approached? Your attack dog is the attacker. Are you responsible for your dog in a court of law? Um, so your attorney I, I really attacked follow, the guy? Is that what I'm yeah, hearing Yeah, your so, attorney okay, gets after it. I'm, I'm not following <clears throat> this one completely. Um, if, if you have a dog and your dog attacks the bad guy. Right. Um, That's my understanding yeah, of the question. Okay. So... What are happens you, are, next? Yeah, are you responsible <laughs> for, you know, is it, a, is it a dog bite? It's going on your homeowner's insurance or something like that? Sure. So, again, different laws are going to vary from place to place. Uh, I'm not sure that, speaking from my experience as a Wisconsin-based attorney, I have seen um, deploying a poodle or a pit bull or whatever type of attack yeah. dog this is to be considered deadly force. But I could imagine that, look, if you're characterizing this dog as an attack dog, maybe it is particular training, maybe it's of a particular breed. Maybe you really like to sharpen its its teeth to the point where maybe this is an attack dog, right? Yeah. Uh, and maybe as a result, arguably, the prosecutor um, will try to argue something a little bit more creative. I think that at the end of the day, you shouldn't be sicking your attack dog or your non-attack dog, for that matter, on anybody until it's at the point where they're creating a deadly threat with you. Mm -hmm. um, because if that attack dog does something that you cannot predict, let's say that this guy's just shoving you. It's very clear, just whatever, imagine a situation where somebody's just shoving you or somebody's, you know, it's gonna say, hey, I'm gonna take your, your snow plow or your snow blower sitting mm -hmm. here in the driveway. Um, Snowblower's thing that, that gets rid of snow for those who are in the south <laughs> right now. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but right, you know, we're, we're going to get rid of that. And you're going to go sick your attack dog. And that attack dog, next thing you know, rips this guy's uh, arteries apart, you know, mm -hmm. takes, takes, and the guy's dead. Well, okay, you just used force that wound up being deadly force yeah. to protect stuff. Yeah. And as you're recovered, that's a no-go area. And I can imagine you getting into a lot of trouble. So just keep in mind, much like when the bullet leaves your gun, you're responsible for it. When that dog leaves your hand or, le or leaves your leash or goes, and goes in for the attack, um, 
I think yeah. that as an attorney, I'm cringing. Yeah, and I know that that probably from the prosecutorial side, you're looking at objectively reasonable force. Is the force of this dog bite objectively reasonable for what you're trying to stop, that that unlawful interference? Sure. So um, that that's going to be, you know, like you said, only use that, that dog when you're facing an imminent deadly threat. Because and, because the bottom line here is we don't, do you know where that dog's going to bite? Is that dog going to bite the person's neck, the person's hand? Is it just going to tug at their boot or their jeans? I mean, do you, do you know what they're going to do? And are you willing to gamble prison time for yourself on it? Not to mention the dog being put down if it does something that you're not expecting. That's what it is. It's a roll of the dice. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, how do you let the police know you're a good guy during a self-defense incident? So we're presuming that the shots are fired, 911's been called, yeah. and well, you're identifying yourself to the 911 person. You're describing who you are, what you're dressed as. Hey, I'm a male white, about six feet tall, mm -hmm. uh, and you know I'm wearing a blue suit, tie, white button-down shirt. Yeah. This is where I'll be, uh, and try to make sure that you communicate that clearly, and then obviously follow the officer commands as soon as they arrive on scene. Yep. And I can see the follow-up questions to this that are always going to be rolling in. Is now I'm on the phone, and there's been a shooting. Am I admitting guilt? You know, oh, I've been involved in a shoot. What do I say when I'm on the phone with the dispatcher so that I'm not sure. implicating myself and in, in admitting to doing something wrong, but the cops who are arriving know right. what's going on when they get there? If you have made the decision to call 911, which, by the way, right call, um, but if you made the decision to call 911, you, it's already the cat's out of the bag, all right? The barn door is open that you were involved in a shooting and that you're the one that shot the gun, or maybe the other person did too. So I look at those facts as, look, everybody's gonna know what those are. Those are already done downstream. They're already out. You may as well just say a, a couple of those things. What's really gonna be shifting things is, is as far as, this is where I was standing exactly. This is where they were standing exactly. Going into that level of details of then I said this, then they said that, then this happened. Those are facts that I probably would not, I would not want to get into when I've got adrenaline coursing through my bloodstream, when it's probably 3 a.m., and insert all those factors here. But as far as the look, there's been a shooting, I shot in self-defense, um, you know, this is where the guy is, uh, mm -hmm. or this is where I saw him run to, here's a description of how they're dressed. Uh, I think that those are those are essentials as far as 911 uh, calls. I think making it clear that you are the victim of a crime and you Absolutely. acted in self-defense is going to be very important right. on there. So. Yeah, you're, you're not you're not spilling too much popcorn in the lobby, so to speak, as far as giving away all those little tiny details. Very good analogy. Well, you spilling know, popcorn in the lobby. That's why I get that's, the big bucks, uh, that's, you know? That's, that's this why, is why you're here. I wouldn't have thought of that one. That's why you guys are the elite <laughs> members, right? We don't we don't drop the spilling popcorn in the lobbies during yeah. during LTBs, right? right? This yeah, is that's not for everybody. That's it's not just, for everybody. One. So, right. All right. So if you're in a mall and you hear gunfire from around the corner, should you engage? I'm going the other way personally. Run, run away. <laughs> right. That gets back to exactly what we talked about the shark tank mm -hmm. before. You yeah. know, are you willing to jump into that? Yep. And now, of course, the follow on question. Well, my, my children are over where I hear the shots. Right. Okay. It, it changes things up. You have to sure. know the totality of the circumstances. That's a legalese phrase that we use in the That's police good. world. Yeah. That's good. The totality of the circumstances. What's going on? That, uh, I'm, I'm picking on whoever asked this question because you didn't give us enough information because there's always a million what ifs. Yep. What if my wife is over there? What if, you know, okay, well then, then the, the, the answer changes to that question. But if you're around the corner and there's shooting going off to your left, go to the right, 
get out of there, protect yourself. Because again, self-defense, you, you, right. you have no moral obligation to go over there and try to save the day. You want to stay alive. So. And if you feel like you do, then prepare for the consequences if you're wrong. Absolutely. So can I carry in a bar if I'm just there to eat? <laughs> um, <laughs> clearly, this is a Wisconsin resident yeah, asking this. Yeah, this is clearly <laughs> a Wisconsin thing, right. Uh, other than the fact that nobody goes into a bar. I think it's legally prohibited in Wisconsin to go in a bar and not have something to drink. Like, little known fact. but yeah, I, that, you know, Tavern but, lobby. Right, tavern yeah, lobby. Yeah, We've got a very strong yeah, tavern lobby yeah. here. Um, but... Uh, Look, number one, this is going to change with, with time and place. In other words, this is going to change depending upon the jurisdiction that you're in, what the laws of that state may be. My bet is that in many states, that's going to be bad. Don't do it. I mean, you're, you'll be breaking the law if you do. In other states, provided that you're lawfully complying with whatever the restrictions are, for instance, if you're concealed carrying, do you have a concealed carry permit if required? And if you're not drinking, then okay, that may yeah. be fine in your state. But just keep in mind if you're traveling, if you're on a road trip, that that kind of stuff changes and you're gonna be liable if you get caught up in the change. Yeah, we have uh, very good information on the, the USCCA page out there, especially for members, for everybody um, about state laws and, and what's out there. And the state laws will change. Some places allow you to drink to the level of being impaired while driving. You know, some places, zero tolerance. You can't have any alcohol in your system if you're, in get, if you're carrying a gun. So know your local laws. Um, that's we get back all the time. And I noticed that actually on the concealed carry on your website, that there's yes. a fantastic map of the United States where you can click on yep. different states, yep. see exactly, okay, if I have a license from Wisconsin, where, can I, where am I valid to carry to? And yep. you can click and kind of get the best crash course possible of here's, here's what this looks like over there. Mm -hmm. Obviously, folks, always, 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 check the local laws in those different places because keep in mind, things can change. I realize this sounds crazy, but things can change daily sometimes. So the, the website, I don't think, is intended to be legally binding, but it is intended it, it, to be the best possible resource. Yeah, gives a solid overview Absolutely. of what the laws of that state are and tells you whether or not your permit is good there. So we, we've got that information out yep. there too. So, Fantastic, check it um, out if you haven't. Next question up is, uh, again, it's gonna fall state by state. What if I get pulled over by a police officer? Do I tell them I have a gun or do I keep my mouth shut? Well, and you just said state by state. So yeah. that, again, maybe spilling a little bit of the popcorn in the lobby there because the answer is gonna vary state by state. Certain laws are part, pardon, certain states do have laws that you do have a duty to disclose to the officer that you're carrying or there's any weapons in the car. So keep in mind if you fail to do that, you may be subject to those penalties for failing to do so. Uh, other states, it's gonna be up to you. And that's probably what the question's geared towards, which is the up yeah. to you. Let me just kind of throw it to you. What's your preference as a law enforcement uh, officer? What, what do you tell folks? Uh, well, I really like to see a concealed carry permit and a driver's license come out the window. You know, when it, it, there's a driver's license. Oh, and here's a concealed carry permit, too. Um, in the state of Wisconsin, I'm not allowed to ask you if you have a concealed carry permit until I know that you have a gun. Because then, you know, then I can have reasonable suspicion that there's a crime committed. So I'm not allowed to even ask if you have a permit unless I know that you have a firearm. But I know that in the state of Ohio, upon first interaction with police officer, if you have your concealed carry permit and your gun, you must disclose immediately when the officer walks up. Hi, I'm Officer Smith. I pulled you over for speeding. Yes, thank you very much. I do have a concealed carry permit and my gun is on me. That's required in the state sure. of Ohio. So um, I like to see... Um, you know, a, a very calm, slow, you know, following my directions. If they hand me their concealed carry permit through the window here in the state of Wisconsin, I'll say, is your firearm on you? Yes, it is. Where is your firearm right now? It's on my right hip. Okay, you don't reach for yours and I won't reach for mine. And now we're going to finish this traffic stop, you know, and, sure. and carry on. Um, 
you know, the, the places where you find guns are when you say, are there any guns in the car? And the guy says, no, no, there's nothing. And, and then for whatever reason, you end up searching the car, and sure enough, there's guns in the car. So, Big problem. Yeah. So um, follow the officer's directions. That's the best thing that I can, I can tell for people as, you know, when they're pulled over. As, as an attorney, I guess I, I recognize that um, not every officer is going to necessarily be as respectful as, as Kevin here will be. Uh, and my experiences, uh, unfortunately, sometimes run to the contrary there. Uh, my own practice is this, is that I'm mindful of where I am. I'm mindful of the fact that, boy, in this particular county, I may really get hassled and detained. And um, again, in Wisconsin, there's no duty to disclose, as we already talked about. So here, we, we have the whole spectrum of, of, of issues or of, of opportunities. I'll tell you that a handful of years ago, I got pulled over um, in a little bit more of a rural county where, yeah, I assume that they're going to be a little bit more pro-firearm. had a perfectly, basically my transaction, my interaction with the officer was exactly what Kevin just described. So, um, but would I necessarily do that in a county where um, some of the leadership within those departments or, or agencies have talked about the fact that if they, if they catch you concealed carrying, basically, uh, that they're going to take you out of the car and put you on the ground, spread eagle, and certain, right. Yeah. I'm probably not going to bring it up there, just realistically. Yeah. Unless you have to. Yeah. Uh, unless you have to, exactly. So, so yeah. it, it, all, it all depends on time and place, and in a perfect world, it would work like what Kevin said, but uh, we recognize that sometimes that's not always the case. Mm -hmm. The next question kind of has me saying, hmm, is it a good idea to ask your lawyer about the length of time before the state can no longer reopen the case and refile the charges? Yeah, someone has been charged. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that someone already has a lawyer and yeah. something's already happened. Yeah. Uh, just call it a hunch. Yeah. Uh, so, all right, so let, let's frame up this, this question just to make sure we're on the same page. So something's happened. It sounds like you already have an attorney since it said your lawyer. Yeah. And now we're asking about what's called the statute of limitations, basically to, to charge or to recharge yeah. something. Yes, ask your attorney pertinent legal information and yeah. to get pertinent legal advice. I'm not trying to be flip or casual about it. You'd be surprised how many times people don't ask their attorney, and you'd be maybe even more or less surprised, I guess, that attorneys don't tell their clients of pertinent legal things. There's a huge, there's a huge chasm between good attorneys and bad attorneys, and that's from my end, I guess, if there's something I can communicate to folks who are watching this, um, if there's one nugget you can walk out of this today, or there's one of a couple nuggets, it's this, is that there is a gulf of difference between great attorneys and bad attorneys, and the outcomes will all too often reflect this. And it's typical uh, to try to look at websites and try to figure out who's the good one, who's the bad one, and unfortunately, most advertising for attorneys all sounds the same, mm -hmm. and you have Unfortunately, a lot of state bars, you know, legal regulations and restrictions on lawyers who advertise, um, which basically constrains the amount of information that we're allowed to give out. So the result is, is yeah, we're all st stuck saying, we're tough, we'll fight for you, we're aggressive, and so forth. But that's where it's really going to be important to take the time to research out who it is that you're talking to, take the time to try to figure out, is this the winner, or is this maybe the not quite the winner? Because the winner should be informing you of that kind of information. Well, not to rip on this attorney, but I guess. Uh, you know, ideally, if they got the charge dismissed or if it was never prosecuted in the first place, I always tell my clients, look, if it's a felony, it's blank number of years. If it's a misdemeanor, it's blank number of years. Here's, here's what we're looking at as part and parcel of the moving and dynamic legal situation that we're in. Um, but folks, I get 
speaking for myself, I get very frustrated by the fact that um, you know when somebody's out there in the market price shopping and they'll get uppity about the fact that you know us, who's a top shelf firm, uh, yeah, we're more expensive than insert gutter ball attorney here. And they, they're frustrated by the fact, and the folks are frustrated by the fact, and I get frustrated at their frustration about the fact that, yeah, you know, these, are, these are very different things. So do your research. If you don't know what I'm talking about at all, if this is coming to you as a bolt out of the blue, for God's sake, do your research right now, because um, if, God forbid, you ever do need to hire an attorney, you need to be educated on the process of how to go about hiring the attorney. So reading a bunch of websites, not only in your market, doesn't have to be in your town, just Google up, uh, Google up a, a place wherever it is in the country and just take a look and try to discern, boy, these look like people who know what they're doing, these don't. But try to d go out there and educate yourself and be informed. Well, that rolls right into the next two questions we got over here. One says, there's no experienced self-defense lawyers in my area. What can I do? They all live two hours away. The other one says, I live in Bakersfield, California. Can you help me? Yes, we can help you. Go to uscca.com, and we have a list of attorneys who work with us, many who work 24 hours a day. We can call them at any time. So um, I'm going to say that if attorneys, uh, an attorney is two hours away, that's not too far. It's probably going to take him two hours to get to you anyway. So, um, yes, we can help you with that. Contact us here at the USCCA. We'll, we'll help you find an attorney. So, um, Yeah, you're not shopping for the barber. You're not shopping to make mm -hmm. who makes the best sandwich, right? The most local attorney may not be the best attorney. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, the one that closest to you, just playing the odds, is probably not the best one yeah. more times than not. We handle cases across the state. It's every single week our attorneys are driving three, four, five hours to get to a particular far-flung county on a particular important case. So uh, that's not an issue, but keep in mind that the price points will often, ref well, they will reflect that. Yeah. All right. So if uh, someone attacks me and I can't see what's in their hands, can I pull my gun? What should I do? Uh, direct well, question. How are you? So, all right. <clears throat> so I got attacked, right? And I couldn't see what was in their hands. Well, first off, we don't know how we're being attacked, right? So mm -hmm. um, are they presuming that they're not driving a car at me or something like that, but how am I going to be able to articulate that they were using deadly force against me? Okay, And maybe they were, don't get me wrong. That's but exactly the word I was looking for, articulate. Are there, there you Reasonably go. Reasonably articulate. Yeah, we're we're classing we're the place up for you elite folks, all right? Um, but that's, that's a very fair question, though, because believe me, your attorney and the cops and the prosecutor and ultimately the jury is going to be asking that question, too. If you're going to be using deadly force in self-defense, you are going to have to be able to show or to articulate um, how you were being, um, uh, how you were in fear of, yeah. of, great, of great bodily harm or death. Is, is this an imminent deadly threat? And, and if yep. you can reasonably articulate that, then you can use your firearm to stop that deadly threat. Um, here's a good one, uh, another legalese. Uh, um, why is there a potential civil case after the criminal case has been cleared? Isn't that double jeopardy? You get to now inform people <laughs> as to the true nature of double jeopardy. <clears throat> yeah, so they, the reason why they allow you to do that was just to set up our questions here at the USCC broadcast. <laughs> um, no, it's, look, there's, there's a criminal process and there's a civil process. Double jeopardy um, is a surprisingly complex issue. It basically just has to do with um, when jeopardy attaches, which is a surprisingly tricky concept, which usually has to do with the fact of, I'm in state court, my state court jury has been impaneled or sworn in on my particular case. 
now double jeopardy is attached. So if the case got dismissed, there's a mistrial, there may be double jeopardy issues. Otherwise, if the prosecutor wants to charge me, dismiss the case, charge me, dismiss the case, charge me, dismiss the case, at some point that may become vindictive or malicious prosecution, but it's not gonna be double jeopardy. So understand that double jeopardy, as folks are unfortunately misinformed through Hollywood and the media, has a very actually narrow legal definition and connotation with it. And we're talking right now about the criminal process. And we're talking specifically, if you heard the word that I slipped in, about state criminal process. Sometimes you have folks who may be up on for reasonably similar conduct on state criminal charges and then on federal criminal charges, and that's not necessarily double jeopardy. Now, likewise, we flip over to the civil side as well. It just has to do with the fact that we have maybe different jurisdictions, different laws for the same conduct, and as a result, different outcomes, penalties, and, and court procedures that are in play. I'm not saying that this is beautiful and you should love it. I'm just saying, here's your question. Here's why. Different laws, different outcomes, different court processes, different forms of relief that the petitioner, whether that's a civil plaintiff in the case of a civil lawsuit or whether the United States government in the form of a federal lawsuit or state or county or municipal for whatever level we're at, those are all different jurisdictions and there's different levels of double jeopardy that attach. All right. Sounds good. Fair enough. Uh, I, I made it sound good at yeah, least, yeah, hopefully, it was, right? It was okay, great. All, right, all right. So um, here, this this will be easy. You, that one went on a little bit long, but not, you know, you, you get paid for that. All right, pay by the um, word. Yeah. So that's um, right, yeah. This may be a one-word answer. Is there ever an instance where, having drawn my weapon, that I should not call the police? Hmm. Can I make that my, my word? Uh, hmm. um, all right, so you've drawn your weapon, and is there ever an instance where you should not call the police? I mean, yes, I'm sure there is an instant <laughs> where that's the case, um, but generally speaking, look, who saw you draw the weapon? Is, is the bad guy gonna win the race to 911 and say that you just tried to rob them? There's, mm -hmm. I have had a number of clients over the years who have no criminal record, are perfectly respectable, outstanding family people, uh, great jobs, mortgage, the whole bit, right? You get the picture. And they didn't take winning the race to 911 seriously enough. And as a result, the bad guy uh, was able to frame the issue for the police. And he the, knows the legal system. They He's know been the legal involved. <laughs> Give the devil their due. And yeah. if you're at the point where you are robbing people, burglarizing homes, and so forth, um, with a few exceptions of basically being drug addicts, uh, with a few exceptions, if you're engaging that level of violence, that level of felony, uh, you've probably been in the, in the justice system in and out, at least for the last handful of years, possibly your entire life since you've been a teenager. And the result is that those folks are really, really, really smart and educated about how to play the system. And those are the folks who, yeah, they're gonna either try to ghost and disappear, or they're gonna be the first one to call 911. I assure you, it's gonna go one way or the other. They're gonna try to melt into the jungle, or they're gonna call 911. And the problem is, is that if you don't call 911, and they do, now you're on your back heel. Yeah, so if you have to pull your gun out, if you were so afraid that you have to pull your gun out to protect yourself, call the police. Please call the police. Right. So. When you look at the list of USCCA lawyers, can you be assured they are all highly qualified Second Amendment lawyers and knowledgeable about firearms? <laughs> Do you want to take this one? Um, no, no, I want to hear are what you, you have to say. Right. I was going to say something about the full faith and credit of the USCCA, and we love our members, and we're always here to help you, but 
you're Got involved it. in this. So what I would say is this, is uh, me personally, I have not gone out and interviewed every single one of these attorneys. I have not questioned. This or, is a really good lawyer answer. Or interrogated. <laughs> I'm covering all my bases. Yeah. That's what it is, right? I have not personally interrogated each and every single one of these people on their track records. How many jury trials have they done recently? What's their experience on this particular kind of offense or that particular? Look, at the end of the day, um, this, there is a large degree of, of um, analysis that goes into who are the folks on these lists. This is not just some sort of random list that's thrown together for everyone, okay? But different people work differently um, uh, with each other to varying degrees. Um, the person who's the right call for you may not be the right call for your friend, okay? So I realize that that sounds crazy, but lawyers are people. Yeah, we're a commodity too, but we're, we're, we're people, and there's going to be a lot of personal vetting that I would urge each and every single one of you, should, God forbid, you be in a situation where you need a criminal defense attorney, to figure out who's not only on paper got the chops, but who can I talk to? Is this guy a jerk? I mean, maybe you want the jerk who's yeah. going to do a good job in court, but if they're a jerk, maybe you're going to have a hard time communicating with them, and the results oftentimes suffer. Well, um, you're going to love this because we got a list of questions now that will let you expand upon oh, that. Oh, perfect. So um, when I'm considering an attorney and I make that first call, what should I ask him? What questions should I ask him or her to make sure that they're competent with my representation? Got it. So one of the, the initial question I have is, has something happened and you're looking to retain an attorney? You're looking to hire an attorney for a specific incident or issue? Or are we just kind of generically shopping around to get educated in the marketplace? Um, if the former, if the first, of something's happened and now we need to figure out what's going on, is I would want to definitely take their measure by, look, how many cases is, do, do you, have you handled like mine? How many areas of law do you practice in? Do you practice 10 different areas of law? Do you have to take whatever walks through the door? Or have you developed enough skills, expertise, and a reputation of I am really good at this one or maybe two things where, okay, because that's gonna be an easy way to take a little bit of a measure. I'm not saying it's the only way, but it's gonna be one way of telling how good is this person at this particular thing. Um, looking, as I said already, at, at how many types of cases, look at their litigation record. Ask them how many times have you or your firm taken cases to trial recently? Um, honestly, this is, may sound strange, I would be less concerned about the outcomes of those trials. I mean, don't work, we all worry about outcomes, but let me explain why. Uh, being a defense attorney uh, is, can be sometimes be a very rewarding and other times a very frustrating experience. The cases that we are oftentimes able to rehabilitate and uh, they start out looking bad and then we, through a lot of investigation, a lot of legal analysis and this and that, we craft a great factual or legal or both kind of arguments and the prosecutor either dismisses the case or they give our, our client such a good deal, hey, we'll take your felony down to this ticket for 100 bucks, just pay it. Great, they go away. Um, our clients, though, sometimes don't always want to follow our advice. Uh, maybe they want to take something to trial that really shouldn't be going to trial. And we tell them this of, you're going to lose. Um, we, don't, you, we don't have much to go off of. You were four times the legal limit and, uh, and actively drinking vodka, 
you know, just moments, what, the, the cops saw you drinking vodka while you were driving, right? Um, maybe there's just no def great defense issues here. You're crazy. Don't, don't take it to trial, right? Those are the folks who very oftentimes want to take their case to trial. So that's why I'm saying be a little less focused on the outcomes of those trials. But the fact that they are taking cases to trial is usually a good thing um, because it's showing that they're aggressive, they're going to be in the courtroom. And if they are prepared and willing and able to take other people's cases to trial, they'll probably be prepared, willing, and able to take your case to trial as well. So without boring you on all the 50 different ways you can analyze how to look at an attorney, again, um, take a look at how many practice fields they're in, what their experience specifically in your area of criminal law is, um, and then try to take a look at maybe what their litigation track record is. There's lots of other ways that you can look at. You can look at their awards. You can look at this. You can look at that. Those are all fine. Um, but you really learn a lot just based off of um, their experience and, and how many different areas of law that, that they mm -hmm. handle. And now, in that same first call, okay. what should a person tell you about themselves when they're, when they're making that call? Usually the biggest thing I'm interested in is, is what's the charge? Sometimes we have a charge, sometimes we don't. We just have facts. So what's the facts? What's the charge? Where did this happen? And there's certain things called elements, okay? The elements are the ingredients. They're, those are the building blocks to whatever particular charge. So for instance, if this was a drunk driving case, I'm interested in um, basically was the person operating a motor vehicle, was it on a public highway, and were they under the influence of an intoxicant? Those are basically the three ingredients, the three building blocks to a, a DUI charge. And I'm betting that it's pretty darn similar in every single state. So there's usually very specific pieces of information that I'm after and looking for to legally analyze and assess the situation. So usually, I, I like to take charge of the conversations a little bit, mm -hmm. just to kind of get this. Imagine that. Right, I imagine, <laughs> or just, imagine, go with us on that, all right? But I like to, to get an idea as to, okay, where are we at? And then I'll throw it back to them of, okay, give me the whole story now that I kind of have a few of the chapter, uh, the chapter headlines of what's coming up so I can see how this is all gonna fit together. Other times, the problem is you'll have people who call in and they'll give you the 20 minute rambling story of their life, which is great, but there's a time and place for that and it's probably not before I know why you're calling me and what you know what's going yeah. on here. Yeah. All right, and people should probably expect to uh, provide a retainer at that time, at that first meeting? Typically, uh, yes. Okay. Yeah, so. typically, yes. So keep in mind that different states and their state bars are going to have different rules about what constitutes uh, forming a, an attorney-client relationship. Maybe it's putting pen to paper and signing a contract. Maybe it is uh, them cashing a check or accepting payment. Maybe you don't ha need either of those. Maybe both parties just have to have an intent to form that relationship. But generally speaking, uh, yeah, expect to transact some sort of money in order to get that retainer. If you're expecting that attorney to drop what they're doing and prioritize your case, your issue, your problem, um, They've odds are if they've been around, they've been burned by too many people uh, who have written them IOUs that never go anywhere, and they're going to ask for money up front. And that is exactly why you are members of the USCCA because we make sure that you get that legal protection that you need, and and when you need it, you really need it. So it, right. it's everything's going to be happening fast and swirling around your head. Next question up is about church, and uh, what if an active shooter comes into church and I could save my life and my wife? But engaging with the active shooter allows me to save other people in the church. What are my rights and 
I couldn't tell the police I feared for my life, but you know, understanding this is an imminent deadly threat. So. Sure. So two things. Number one is uh, churches are a little bit different just because certain states may have laws prohibiting carrying in, in churches or places of worship. So keep in mind that depending on where you are, that may have been a felony just to carry there. And obviously you displaying that firearm, even if you do everything 100% perfect and cleared for that conduct, you are, may still be exposed to prison and significant fines. Uh, if you're in that kind of situation. Um, but otherwise, look, exactly the same conversation we had before, in essence, which is what are you willing to jump into that shark tank for? Are you willing to risk your life and the legal and financial well-being of your family, your business, people you work with, and so forth? Um, are you willing to risk all of that for, for what it is? And if the answer is yes, if you're willing to roll those dice, then God bless. Uh, if you're not up for the task, for whatever reason, then okay. Um, I guess the only thing I would say would be to be decisive about it one yeah. way or the other. Yeah. And hey, we just had a wonderful live training broadcast about protecting houses of worship. And that video is still up and available for our members. So go back and take a look at that. Um, we talked about everything from tactics to what's going to happen inside the church and, and probably what's going to happen to you afterwards. So um, we've got that information out there. And uh, um, we also have a great book, Countering the Mass Shooter Threat, that al allows you to look into this a little bit more in depth. So. Um, I'm going to make fun of the next guy as this comes up. Um, his name's Tom, and Tom asks, Great guy. Can, Great can guy. Tom specify how the Castle Doctrine may be different in vehicles, particularly convertibles or motorcycles? So no roof on your car uh, doesn't change anything, but uh, go ahead. Sure. So I'm, I'm pretty sure this guy's name is Kevin for writing this question. Um, all right. So generally speaking, for those of you who, who uh, may not know, Castle Doctrine, let's just quickly touch on what it does again. All right. So if we look at overall self-defense laws, we're talking about you need to be in reasonable fear of imminent death, great bodily harm. Basically, long story short, you have to be in fear of deadly force against you before you can use deadly force back. Okay. What Castle Doctrine does is it basically sets a list of triggering conditions or a list of lines, legal lines in the sand, somebody breaking into your home, somebody breaking into your car when you are in it, okay? Um, whatever, whatever it is in your particular state, it'll set a list of triggering conditions. And once that's met, there is basically a presumption in most places, it's a presumption under law uh, that you are in reasonable fear of imminent death, great bodily harm, that you are in fear of, of a deadly threat against you, and therefore, you can use deadly threat back. You don't have to articulate, I saw a weapon, or he did this with his knife, or something like that. Um, that's, that's the gist, that's the flavor, the lay of the land as to how uh, castle doctrine laws work. So the reason why this is important now is because once we transfer this over to vehicles, we need to remember what the intent is. So one of the biggest things, and it's actually already come up here once today, one of the biggest questions I get is, if somebody's breaking into my car, our state is castle doctrine, so that means I can shoot them, right? And first thing I say is, well, okay, are you in the car? Because if you're not in the car, then there better be your, your baby in the car or something else like that, because otherwise, that's a defense of property, not a defense of self. Castle doctrine has nothing to do with this, all right? Generally speaking, castle doctrine, that triggering criteria that we're talking about, is somebody needs to have broken into or be in the process of breaking into, okay? So does that mean that they are slapping their hand on the trunk or on the hood of your car? You need to check your particular state. What are they doing or saying? Are they waving a knife or some sort of weapon around that makes their intent clear? 
or are they just smashing the window? What's going on here? Okay. Um, but if they are, and if therefore the triggering criteria in your state are met, then yes, you may be able to use uh, deadly force in your defense. The reason why I say may is because there's another factor we haven't talked about here. And it's come up in the live training broadcasts, which is another reason why if you haven't watched the live training broadcasts, you really should, okay? Because there's a lot of great content information that goes on there. But there's also something else called jury instructions. So for those of you who may not know, jury instructions are the, well, they're literally the jury instructions. This is the form of the law that gets reduced to the spoken word, not the gobbledygook kind of stuff that you're used to reading online. If you ever gobbledygook, gobbledygook, gobbledygook. Well, words you know, matter. Oh, well, you know, I'm articulating. That's what it is. All right, um, but. It's basically giving the, the plain English translation to the jury to instruct them on here's what the law says, all right? Jury instructions are very, very important because sometimes they don't always match what the actual statute says. I'm gonna pick on our own home state here in Wisconsin. There is no duty to retreat here in Wisconsin. However, according to the jury instructions, if God forbid you're involved in a self-defense shooting and you're being charged with some sort of homicide, or negligent homicide or something along those lines and you're trying to use self-defense, the jury instructions are gonna instruct that the jury can take into account your ability to flee from the scene. Not that you have to flee from the scene, but that they can take it into account. So what does that mean, right? And you know the prosecutors are gonna be talking about that, by the way, and it's part of their closing argument. So the reason why I'm bringing that up now is because the jury instructions, when you're in an automobile, you can really rest assured that if the prosecutor is some sort of out or some sort of hook to hang their hat on, they're going to be hitting that and hitting that hard. Okay, If they've taken the case and we're now at a jury trial, expect that to come out quite a bit. You should be using your firearms when you have to, when there is truly no alternative. And I'm not saying that there's zero times and that can happen in the car. I'm just saying that you're in a car. God willing, you're able to pull out of the driveway or pull out of wherever it is that you are um, and escape from the scene because a firearm doesn't really cause, doesn't really um, cause your problems to go away. It's going to create a lot of other problems. And I see that and deal with that professionally on a day in, day out basis where you're watching unthinkable things happen to great people. And as a result, even though they may have done everything right, they're left with a very expensive, a very tedious process where they can lose their jobs because people are going to be reading about this in the media, whatever it is that, that you've done or whatever it is that the media is saying you, that you've done. You may lose your jobs. You may lose friends, family members, um, connections, and so forth. So if there's an opportunity to not use that firearm, I would strongly, strongly, strongly encourage you to not use that firearm, which is inherent anytime we're talking about cars. But if you have to, and if the triggering criteria is met, then so be it, okay? Bringing it back to convertibles, I think that this is gonna be a more difficult situation um, in a lot of ways, just because what does, it mean, what does it mean to be breaking into a convertible, right? Um, did, you, did the person jump into the back seat and therefore they broke the invisible plane, so to speak, of where the, uh, the A pillar and the B pillar and the glass and the hood mm -hmm. and the top all would have been? Um, my suspicion 
is you know convertibles aren't really a thing here in Wisconsin. <laughs> There's some brave souls, but my suspicion is that if you look at your state's laws, there may be some case law to define what constitutes breaking into a convertible or what constitutes breaking into a motorcycle. Speaking for here in Wisconsin, we didn't get our Castle Doctrine all that long ago. Um, we actually didn't even get our concealed carry all that long ago. We were the 49th state to get concealed carry, in fact. So part of the, the, the advantage to that is that we have some really great concealed carry laws. Uh, part of the disadvantage to that is these haven't been around for 20 years and we don't have 50 cases that have gone through where we know exactly here's what a jury or a judge is going to have to interpret this as. I think that if somebody's jumping in your back seat, what else could they really do? If somebody is trying to open your door handle, is that in the process of breaking in? I think under Wisconsin law, the answer is probably going to be yes. I think under your state's law, I, the answer could be whatever it is. Okay. I hate to punt on questions. This isn't a punt. This is me trying to keep you out of prison. Okay. So uh, it's a fantastic question, but unfortunately it deserves a specific answer that I can't give relative to even Wisconsin, thanks to the relative legal novelty of our laws with lack of case law um, and likewise, whatever particular state this might be coming up in. Ditto for motorcycles, folks. Um, motorcycles, it may be an automobile. I would want to make sure that Castle Doctrine also applies to motorcycles. So does it just say cars or does it say generally all automobiles? Does it say class B automobiles? In which case, is a, is a motorcycle a class B? Is it a class M? Uh, I realize this sounds really nitpicky. This is really going to matter if you're going to be going to prison for the rest of your life. All right. So again, I'm not trying to punt on the question. I'm trying to give you as thorough an answer as I possibly can which unfortunately means I'm generally saying, look, here's some of the issues, here's the lay of the land, but you're gonna have to take this back to your own home state and do some further research. That, that was a very thorough answer to get them back to, you know, go back and right. ask your home state. That's how you I, say I, I don't I, know I, when you're an attorney, I like folks. That. Okay. Well, so uh, we're, we're winding down here. Um, could carrying that USCCA card that tells me what to do after, after a self-defense incident could that be used against me in court? Could the prosecutor say that I went looking for a fight because I had this card ready to, 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 you know, to answer? I would probably welcome that, and, and here's why. It's going to open the door from an evidence perspective of bringing in all of your USCCA training. It's going to open the door of bringing in all the articles, all the blog posts, all of your live training events that maybe you watched or went to in person, where it talks about de-escalating, 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 and you're going to be able to introduce. If the prosecutor wants to go there, I mean, look. There's no I, way we can stop them. <laughs> I, 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 I like that because it's going to open up the door of a whole wall of evidence that I think is going to be quite favorable for you. Um, and you got to remember as well that if carrying that card is going to help get you out of this by making sure you don't say or do the wrong thing immediately after the shoot, that's also another great factor. But look, um, prosecutors, different judges, forget even what the law says in your state. Different judges are going to make different rulings. Different prosecutors are going to try to argue for different things. But I think that on balance, when I'm looking at this, if I'm able to talk about all the different training and education resources about de-escalating, walking away, running away, and so forth, if the prosecutor wants to make that trade, I think that's a trade that the defense wins every day of the week. All right. Well, we're looking maybe at the final question here. I am a proud USCCA member. Thank you, whoever sent that in. I'm glad you're a proud USCCA member. Um, should I have an attorney already picked out from the USCCA attorneys, or do they just pick one for me, and should I make contact with an attorney before an incident? Well, you get, you get to choose, basically. So it's not a matter of you're stuck with attorney X versus Y. This isn't another legal, um, you know, 
there's there's some competitors out there that lock you into their own folks, yeah. good or bad. There are some competitors out there that won't prepay um, your upfront, your legal fees, and you're stuck on the hook for most or all of it. Thank God you're here. Yeah. Okay, that's just the long story short on it because yeah. you have the freedom to choose and to do your own research. You're not locked in anyone. Should you pick someone? Look, if you want to, go for it. Um, I get a lot of these calls um, at my own office of folks who just want, you know, they've been to some sort of concealed carry class. The trainer said, talk to attorneys. I'm happy to talk to folks, but keep in mind that if you're talking to the right attorney, they're busy. Okay, um, that's just what it is. If you're talking to the wrong attorney, then they'll be able to stay on the phone with you all day. Okay, so there's always that trade-off. Usually what I tell folks, and I realize this is self-serving, but um, offer to buy an hour of that attorney's time and take them out to lunch or wherever it is, because at least they're kind of getting something out of it and they're happy to engage with you and so forth. Odds are that if you found the right attorney, they're probably used to getting these phone calls just like I am as well. So, uh, but just be respectful of their time and understand that they are constantly getting um, tried by, through email and phone calls of, hey, can I just have two minutes? And as we all know, it's never two minutes. Yeah, and planning ahead is perfect. And you don't even have to use one of our attorneys here at the USCCA. You can use your own attorney if you want to. So I would suggest, yes, make contact before anything happens because when it happens, it's, it's going to be a whirlwind. So thank you very much for that. Um, I'm looking over at the clock right now, and, and as my therapist says, our time is up. So uh, um, That's Tom, one hell of yeah, a team. Yeah. <laughs> Tom, thank you very much for being here. Um, if all you folks watching really enjoyed what Tom and I had to say, where can people help you out by giving you some sort of review? How do we do that? Yeah, so really, folks, um, we really appreciate you coming here and joining us. Something that you can do to help us out is actually scroll down and click on the, the Tom review link. Basically, it brings you to our Google My Business page, which is if you just Google Grieve Law, G-R-I-E-V-E Law here in Wisconsin, uh, you should see a bunch of stars. Uh, and basically, if you just click write a review, folks, this is the internet, four out of five stars is a failing grade. So if you felt like you even got somewhat satisfactory tidbits, nuggets, or something, we'd really, 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 really appreciate it, everybody at our team, uh, for a five-star review. Thank you, thank you, thank you in advance. And uh, there's not a Kevin review button, but there is a USCCA review button down there. So please give the USCCA a review as well. We'd really love to hear from you. Comment, tell all your friends, this is our opportunity to help you as our members, and we really want to give the best possible information that we can. So thank you very much for watching, and we'll be back every month with Ask an Attorney. Thanks.